This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are investing via the strategies of Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and other phenomenally great investors who, you know, the world sometimes calls us all value investors, but we're not really at all. We are just <laughs> looking for deals. Um, that's basically what we do. We are we are garage sale investors. We are I down heard, at the local... <laughs> I heard somebody, I was listening to another podcast, um, and somebody called it quality investing. He said, I'm a quality investor. He looks for quality. Well, I'm I kind of wish them a that. lot of luck on that. That's actually quite easy to do. Quality investing—that's what most oh, mutual fund that, managers try you, to do. There's a that means something specific to you. Yeah, it's it, it's what most mutual fund managers try to do. It's kind of what Guy Spear was pointing us towards: stay fully invested by quality companies, um, but you have to stay fully invested, which means that you're you are often buying companies um, at not such a great bargain. And mm. um, Monish Prabhai was just talking about that recently as the difference between he and Guy in that um, he's looking for quality investments, quality investments as opposed to quality companies. So by saying quality investments, what, what Monish means is he wants a wonderful business that's also a wonderful investment. And that's, that, of course, is what it's Warren Buffett 101. You buy a wonderful business and you buy it on sale. Those are the two things you have to have. So that's a quality company and a quality investment. Mm -hmm. And we want both of those combined. So Manesh just combined them under quality investment. But it, it's a little bit misleading to say, yeah, we just go out and buy quality companies. Well, okay, you can go out and buy quality cars and quality real estate and quality everything and you pay top price. And that can work out quite well, actually. And a lot of wealthy people do that. That's fundamental to wealth preservation is to buy uh, very high quality assets. And um, in the long run, those will do well. They won't make you rich. They'll keep you rich. I think if I, if I say it like that. Interesting. So you're, you're responding to something that sounds like it's kind of like a term that's used. Quality, quality company means something that does not include buying it at a good price. Is that what you're saying? Right. And I don't think anybody would agree with that who tries to buy quality companies. They would always try to say, no, 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 no. We, we, we want to buy it at a great price. Of course we do. Um, and, and they would be more Charlie Mungerish by saying, we, it's better to buy a wonderful business at a fair price than a mm -hmm. fair business at a wonderful price. Mm -hmm. That's kind of Charlie 101. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to say, you know, a fair price, <laughs> the way Charlie means it, is that price as if it's a private company, which typically means about half the price of a public company, which means he's asking for a 50% discount. And that's what Charlie calls fair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, Charlie and Warren are not uh, disagreeing about anything. They, they completely agree about their investment philosophy. And that philosophy, in a nutshell, is what we work hard on this podcast to work out and to teach. 
And that is we're looking for a really quality company, which means we know it's going to be doing better in 10 years than it's doing today. Um, just as if you're buying a quality piece of real estate based on a really good location, you know it's going to be a better, you know, that that condo you bought in Boulder is going to be a better property in 10 years than it is today. It's going to be, was better when you sold it than it was when you bought it because it's in a great location. And that's what we're looking for in a company. We want that same sort of moat that real estate provides with a location that protects it against com- competition. There's just only so many properties on Pearl Street and Boulder. Yeah. And, um, and we're looking for that in a company. Well, <clears throat> so that's I think, what makes it wonderful. I think what people are trying to get at is like a name for this kind of Buffett value investing that, that we're talking about and that so many people are following. Um, and because well, when, cause you so, always say this, when we say value investing, it's not what we're doing. Like value right. investing is different. And so I quite liked that, uh, that term. I'm going to shout out this podcast cause I really enjoyed it. It's called invest like the best and it's episode 141 with Chris Bloomstrand, uh, Bloomstrand. And he was just super interesting and thoughtful to listen to about how he invests. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, he should come on our show instead of listening to this other podcast. But no, it was great. <laughs> um, and he talk, he talks about Berkshire as well. And um, well, I, 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 not not to get lost on this one point is that there is a name for this kind of investing. We yeah, call it rule well, one investing. <laughs> I mean, not well, to, not Char- to beat the point to death, but we call it rule. I've been writing about it for a long time. And since Buffett and Munger don't name it anything. Well, Munger actually calls it focused investing. Well, okay. I don't know that he calls it that all the time. Sometimes he calls it value investing. Yeah, I don't think he really cares. Honestly. <laughs> I don't think they care what they call it. Um, and since nobody else has really nailed it, I'm calling it that. And the reason I'm calling it that is because I think it's it points to this the key fundamental difference of this style of investing versus any other but any other people's view of it and that is we focus along with Charlie and Warren on not losing money not mm-hmm. on making money we mm-hmm. don't focus on making money mm-hmm. what we're focused on is and this is very different you guys we focus on not losing it which means that if we buy a company today we we purchase a part of it today and 10 years from now uh, the company's doing okay, but not great, and and we decide it's not going to continue to be part of our portfolio, and we don't lose any money on it. That is a successful investment. Mm-hmm. It's not what we're targeting, mm-hmm. but it's a successful investment because we've we've correctly identified a company we won't lose any money on. Um, now, if we do the rest of it correctly, that is, we buy at a margin of safety, then we are inevitably going to see the majority of our investments do well and that will result in a in a very high rate of return and that and and the, the importance of this is that we're going to we we hope to get that high rate of return with lower risk than what almost anybody takes in the stock market we we don't want to gamble in the stock market we don't want to just ride along and hope everything goes up over the next 10 years after 10 years of nothing but straight up what we're hoping for, what we're trying for, is to use knowledge to reduce risk and end up with a small portfolio focused, as Charlie says, on a handful of companies we truly understand that the majority of which will be very valuable in 10 years and, and the very least of which we'll, we'll not lose money on. That's how we do it. And that's different than everybody else, uh, I think. Well, it's not different than Buffett, right? 
No, it's not different okay. than Buffy. Um, so part of the way that that all happens is that sometimes companies buy back their own stock. True? Ah, true. Sometimes companies buy back their own stock. <laughs> and when they do that, we're going to talk about that today, <laughs> finally. <laughs> sometimes companies buy back their own stock. And what that means is that they're, let's start with the stock por- portion of that, just to, just to make sure everybody's on the same plate. Yeah, because we've done two episodes on buybacks so far and we haven't even gotten to the buybacks. So, yeah. What does it mean, Dad, when a company buys back its own stock? Why do you even call it a buying back of stock? Why not just buy stock? Okay, so a company becomes public by issuing out slices of its ownership. As if you have a pizza that you own and you want to collect money for whatever reason, so you slice it up into pieces and you sell off the pieces. Mm. That's, that's essentially what the company's doing by selling off its stock. And, and so its stock is now out there with the public, and this amount of stock is called the float. And that means the amount of stock, the amount of shares that are actually out there in the public in hands uh, of, other, of, of everyone else besides the company. All right. You with me so far? I am. And those shares trade at, <laughs> she's like, I know all this. This is what I know about, but I think it's really important okay. to explain. Because she's an attorney that does this stuff all the time. So this is really, really. But I'm going to ask the questions. So, sorry. I'm going to ask the questions because I it, it it's one of these things. This is a great example of something that people think they're supposed to know, but they don't know. Because they don't teach us this stuff. And I mean, I know about it because I went to law school. I went to like specialized school, you know, like we're not supposed to know this stuff and it's okay not to know. and It's okay not to understand it. So I think it's super important to consistently explain it, repeatedly explain how this logistically works, because often we just skip over these bits and feel like we can't ask the question. So, all right. The float is out there. Right. So let's say we sliced up our our company into 12 pieces. Mm -hmm. Now, let's further say that we just have a bunch of cash and um, we we decide, meaning the management team um, gets together with the board of directors and we decide to take some of that cash. Our job job as management is to allocate the cash Mm -hmm. to increased marketing, R&D, buying companies, right? And one of the things we can allocate cash to is to buy back our own stock, buy back some of those shares. Another option would be uh, dividends. They could issue dividends Mm -hmm. to shareholders. They Mm -hmm. could also decide to pay employees more. They could Mm -hmm. improve their facilities. There's a lot of stuff that companies can do with money. And I'm just saying that because that's part of the conversation around buybacks these days. Oh, most definitely. So if we decide to buy back stock, essentially thinking of our pizza, what we're going to do is take some of that cash and we're going to buy back, let's say, two pieces of the pizza. So we, we now to do this, we have to go into the public stock market. Wait a second. So all 12 pieces of the pizza are in the public stock market now? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. All 12 pieces of the company are in the public stock market. Okay. And now we're going to go buy back two of those pieces. Okay. And we have to pay the per share price that day. Yes. So let's say that the per share price that day is $10. So we pay $10 and for one slice, and then we pay $10 for the next slice. And now we've bought back two of those slices. 
Okay. And the reason now, that it's buying it back is because the company is what initially issued those slices right. into the public market. So you don't have right. to add so the back part. Them, it's just a colloquialism. And now we're buying them back. Yeah. And so now what we do with them is we essentially retire them. They go back into the treasury as shares of stock and are no longer part of the float, no longer part of the public ownership of this company. Now the public ownership of the company is down to 10 slices. Let's say there's one person for each slice. <clears throat> there's 10 people now who own this company, one slice each. Mm-hmm. All right. What just happened there was that we reduced the ownership um, by two people and by two slices, but the pie is still the same size. Mm -hmm. We haven't changed the size of the pie. We've just reduced the number of owners of the pie or slices of the pie. And now the owners of those 10 slices have bigger slices. Because just to reiterate, the two that came that were bought back by the company that came back into the company are no longer part of that overall whole. They're retired. They're gone. So what it does right. is it makes those remaining 10 be a larger percentage each one. Correct? Right. So with the pie, what we're going to have to do is mush it all yeah. around <laughs> <laughs> and then recut it into 10 pieces. Yeah. And so where we had 12 pieces before with our owners, now we have 10 pieces and every owner slices larger. It got larger. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that if you thought about owning a bar like this or, you know, maybe a, yeah, like a bar and you had uh, 12 partners originally, you now have 10 partners. Mm -hmm. You've taken some of the profit from the bar and you bought out a couple partners and now all the 10 remaining partners own more of the bar. Yep. Exactly. That's pretty sweet because ultimately if you sell the bar, you'll get a bigger return for your piece. Or if you take profits or take dividends from the bar, paying yourself some of the profit, you'll get a bigger slice of profits. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what buybacks do. They reduce the the number of owners of the of the company and the number of slices of the company. And the remaining owners and the remaining number of slices are all larger as a result, as a percentage. And by the way, this is not a trivial thing. When we're talking about even millions and millions of shares, companies get very aggressive about buying back their stock over long periods of time. For example, IBM from 1996 to about 2009 or 10 bought back 50% of its stock. Whoa. Yeah. I feel like and you've told me that me before, but that's insane. 50 yeah, it's over, huge. wait, over how many years? Over about 25 years, something like that, 20 years, something like that in that range. So if you bought the stock in the middle 90s and you held it and held it and held it, you ended up owning twice as much of the company 25 years later mm -hmm. as you did when you originally bought it. Yeah. That's pretty significant, yeah. right? In other words, if you're in a bar, uh, you own twice as much of the bar. Now, why, years later. why would any company do that? Why would they even bother buying the stock back? Like, what's the point? Okay, so there's several really important reasons to consider doing this. And so management looks at this very seriously. The first reason that we would want them to consider buying back stock as an owner of the company who isn't interested in selling is that it's a way for management to reward me for my long-term ownership of the company. They're, they're going to get me bigger and bigger pieces of, of the company. Oh, management doesn't All care right? about that. 
management doesn't Come care on. about that, but I do. Yeah, you do. As an owner. But why would the okay? company buy the so, buy the stock? Well, let's let's stay with this one, even if they don't really care. You know it's true. Some managements do care. I do know it's true. Um, we'll come back to that. Believe me, <laughs> we'll get to the the dark side of buybacks quite soon because there's a very dark side of buybacks. Um, like most things, it has two edges to mm-hmm. it, right? A good side and a bad side. So the good side of this is that if you have a management team that is has integrity and talent and understands the allocation of capital, it's entirely possible that they could, particularly with a company that has a big moat and a lot of profits and a lot of cash flow, they could in, they could very conceivably reach a point where they realize we can't use all of this cash. We've got more cash than we really know what to do with. Um, so we could sit on it. But if we sit on it and don't do anything with it, right? Remembering the things that we could do, right? Mm-hmm. We could try to expand our marketing, but okay, we're already going as fast as we can go. We could um, acquire other companies. Well, we don't feel like acquiring. There's nobody out there we want to acquire. So what do we do with this money? Well, we could sit on it. And Apple, for example, sat on hundreds of billions of dollars for years. It was sitting overseas. They sort of couldn't repatriate it, but they were sitting on it quite happily, right? Now, what happens when you sit on that cash is that you have a problem as a management team. Because one of the ways a management, a good management team is judged by good owners is the return they're getting on the equity in the company. And that cash is part of the equity. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you, figure out, <clears throat> when you figure out the return on equity, what you're doing is saying, uh, what are the earnings of the company this year? divided by the equity value of the business. That is the assets minus the liabilities is the equity. And this cash is just growing and growing and growing, meaning my equity is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, faster than my earnings are growing, in which case my return on equity is going down. Now that's a bad sign. Management does not like to see return on equity go down. So they're very actively using the equity to grow the return. Now, if they just can't do it to grow the return, there's just nowhere to put the Mm -hmm, equity, mm -hmm. then they really are down to two choices. Three, either suffer the consequences of reduced return on equity, which Wall Street looks at and judges you and says, oh, bad management team, your equity is going down. And so do I, by the way, and so does Buffett. We don't like to see return on equity go down. That's 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 a bad sign. That's a red flag that something's well, going yeah, wrong. Well, yeah, it's a sign that they can't figure out what to do with money, which <laughs> why would you want somebody who can't figure out what to do with some nice money running the company? Precisely. Just give it to yeah. me, which is choice number two. Yeah. Management could pay a dividend and just give us the money back. Mm-hmm. But because we have archaic tax laws driven by legislators that don't understand investing at all, um, the dividends are taxed at right now at 20 to 25%. And so management understands that if it gives me back my dividend, the government's going to take away a big, huge chunk of it. And so that's not great for investors. So management has a third choice. And the third choice is 
to buy back their stock. And that isn't taxed until I finally sell it. And that results in me getting a larger ownership piece of the company without taxation. And that I like as an investor. Mm -hmm. So investors tend to like buybacks. So the first option like in your mind is essentially like the company. do something useful with it. R&D, put right. it in the company, buy it, like whatever, like do something inside the company. Do something to increase my return on yeah. equity or or you know, build the earning side of the company, right? Option two is give it to the owners as a dividend. Option three right. is give it to the owners by increasing their ownership percentage. Right. Right. Those are the basics, right, of, of choices the management team has. And we talked about option four, which is to do nothing. Yeah. And suffer the consequences of a lowered return on equity. All right. So the good way to do buybacks for a management team, a management team that's looking at this and they, they understand investing the way we do, well, and they're good allocators wait, of capital. Wait, let me just say, though, the fourth one, so I just dumped okay. all over it. But I think the fourth one, which is do nothing, actually... <laughs> actually might be a good choice sometimes. I mean, it's oh, it's sure. great to have a big bank account for a rainy day, you know? And oh, there's a lot of companies that right. don't have that that they should. And there are very few companies that that have that much money be, that are just able to sock it away like that and it shows that they've done very well. So, yeah, I just I'm revising my comment actually. Well, when I said it's a red flag that return on equity is going down, which happens when you do nothing with a growing cash flow, mm -hmm. um, cash pile that's going into equity, is that if I know my management team has talent, then I can I can look past it. I can understand them. They're going to talk to me every quarter, every year, <clears throat> and they're going to tell me what they're doing with this capital and I say, yeah, we're we're holding on to this because we think the market, for example, we think the market is going to go down in our industry. We think a lot of companies are going to suffer and we are going to have a cash pile to be able to buy companies then, not now while it's real expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So that would be a really intelligent That's reason the, to hold the on to. That's the reason. That's the Buffett reason, exactly. So right now, for example, Berkshire is not buying back its stock, even though a lot of people think it's relatively cheap, including Buffett, I think. He's waiting for one of two things. Either the stock market goes down and his stock becomes super cheap, and he can buy it back with $110 billion that he's holding on to, or he can acquire companies super cheap that are on his target list that are now too expensive. And I'm sure he would prefer that over buying back stock, he always has in the past. So the, you know, the ability of a management team that with a lot of talent to hold on to cash and go ahead and have shareholders understand why return on equity is not as great as it could be, is because the future will be very bright if they know what they're mm -hmm. doing. Okay. Yeah. Right? So you're you're totally right about that. Now there comes a point here where management has decided to buy back stock. A great management team, one with talent at allocating capital, is not just going to arbitrarily buy back its stock just because it has the cash and knows that it can increase the ownership of those people who own the business. It's going to buy back the stock when it benefits the shareholders. And the only time it benefits the shareholders to buy back stock is when the price of the stock is lower than the value of the share of the of the business. Okay, so they want to make sure they buy at a certain time. Actually, the time doesn't matter. They want to buy at a certain price. 
so that they're buying it not too expensively, just like if I were, right? Right, okay. exactly. So think of it from <clears throat> from a CEO's position. He's Let's say he thinks his company is fairly valued, intrinsic value is about $100 mm-hmm. a share, mm-hmm. okay? And in this market right now, the stock is selling for $200 mm-hmm. a share, all right? If he takes my cash in his company, that's my equity, I'm, I'm the owner. If he takes my cash and goes out and buys the stock for $200 a share, he's destroying value because he's paying twice as much as he should for something using my money. Yeah, but maybe that's because that person couldn't figure out anything better to do with it. Well, even sitting on it would be better than wasting it. He's he's throwing away $100 a share, just taking it out to the parking lot and burning it. And the reason that's true is because we understand that the stock market ultimately properly values every business in the long run. The, the value will go, the price will go above value for a while, like it is right now in many companies. It'll go below the value for a while, like back in the 70s. Um, but eventually, you'll see that it, it does put the price eventually back where it should be. So Ben Graham used to say that um, in the short run, the market is a voting machine. It's all about who's voting mm. for what. But in the long run, it's a weighing mm. machine. It does give you the right mm. weight. And so if we believe that, then we would understand that a management that is allocating capital at $200 a share for a $100 asset is incredibly stupid. They're completely just puking away $100 a share because sometime down the road, that's just going to come back to that price. And if we think about IBM, that's exactly what happened with IBM. They were buying back stock at 160, 180, 190 a share, way over its intrinsic value. And now the stock is down around 120. And that was wasted money. We've seen them do that with uh, uh, this company, <clears throat> uh, Chicago Bridge and Iron. Mm. They got into trouble with the purchase of a nuclear power uh, contract. And they just got hammered and eventually sold out super cheap. But they were buying back their stock at 40 and $50 a share and ended up selling the company at like 18 bucks a oh, share. Geez. So they imagine the, the, the waste of all of that money. I mean, they're buying back stock at 50 bucks when the company is worth about yeah. 20. Yeah. Well, Horrible. and there's so much so, buying right now. <clears throat> oh, companies are buying their own stock right now. And that's why I'm asking about it because it's, it's, (laughs) I mean, clearly either they think that it's the right price and it's a good deal or they don't care. Those are the two options. Well, I have to tell you that last year, 2018, stock buybacks hit a record of $1.1 trillion before the end of the year. I think it ended up at about $1.1 two or three trillion. Now that's a lot. Was that globally? That's a huge piece of the stock market. Uh, great question. Honestly, don't know. I'm just curious about what percentage that is. Cause the global markets are something like 80 trillion or 90 trillion. Now that's, that's pretty much us. Um, 
Because these are companies that are announcing in the U.S. markets. So it's U.S. stock market, which I actually don't know how much yeah. overall money that is off the top. About $25 trillion in the U.S. market. So, all right. So it's a, it's a so, little bit. It's a decent amount. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's put this in perspective. That would mean <clears throat> in that 25 years that IBM bought back half its stock, the stock market would buy back all of its stock. Yeah. That's how big this is. <laughs> It's humongous. <laughs> yeah. It's humongous. Not only that, but they're doing it last year and this year at really high prices. I mean, everybody understands that the stock market asset prices have been pushed up by low interest rates. And one of the uses of borrowing money is to buy back your own mm -hmm. stock. Now, <laughs> why would any management team want to buy back stock at $200 a share that's only worth 100 Okay, so that's the so that's I the have, really nitty gritty question because mm, give me what you think from the Financial Times recently. Let me quote: Apple, the biggest buyer of its own stock, highlighted again this week the benefits of buybacks. Its quarterly results showed a near thirteen percent year-on-year slide in net income, but thanks to the reduction in its share count, its earnings per share were down just seven percent. That blew my mind, right. and I put it in my right. notebook of investing. <clears throat> let's 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 re let's reword that just slightly because I'm thinking that went right Please. by a lot of people. As a company, looking at it as if you were the sole owner, their earnings went down thirteen percent. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. So you're thinking. So I'm the owner of the business. Well, and that, by the way, quarter that was the quarter, <clears throat> not annual. Good for yeah. one quarter, their earnings went down thirteen yeah. percent. I'm the sole owner of the business. I had $100 earnings quarter over quarter last year. Now I've got $87 of earnings. What yeah, that's a big there? deal. Okay. <clears throat> ah, but through the magic of buybacks, as a shareholder of part of the company, magically, the earnings per share mm -hmm. only went down 7%. Yep. Whoa, what did they just do? The financial alchemy. Mm -hmm. We've made gold out of yeah. lead. This is yeah. awesome. And as a management team, that is always yeah. attractive, making gold out yeah. of lead. Yes. So if you can fool some <laughs> of the people all the time, you can keep your stock price high. So one of the uses of buybacks is to fake out investors who don't know that their company is going to be priced ultimately based on its earnings, not its earnings per share, mm -hmm. right? And if you don't think that's true, just keep going back until you have bought back all the stock except for one share. <laughs> yeah. In which case, oh, we we did actually lose 13%. All of a sudden, it really is $100 to $87 <laughs> magically. Ah, shoot. Yeah. What just happened there? Um, right. Yeah. So this is this is one reason companies and it's, do to that. Me, it's very I mean, we always tricky. talk so much about the democratization of investing and how extraordinary the internet's been for small investors like us, which is 100% true, 1,000% cosine. That said, I do think that there's some negative effects of the internet making quick financial numbers come out so easily. And also the 24 hour financial news, I think is a terrible influence on this stuff. 
because people often just hear, oh, EPS, earnings per share, earnings per share, EPS, blah, 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 blah. Like, what's the EPS to the share price? It's like this very sort of constant refrain. And this exactly shows that that the difference between the actual earnings versus the earnings per share actually um, is something that people don't notice necessarily. Um, if they're just doing a cursory, you know, check the headline kind of investing practice. Yep. And if you're, and if you're a fund manager who graduated from Harvard business school and you do know the difference between earnings and earnings per share, but you don't care because you're only going to be in that stock for three or four months. Yeah. So earnings per share is all that matter to you. You don't think like an owner, you think like a speculator. So speculators care about earnings per share. Owners care about Oh, you mean because in the short term, they do tech, they did technically, they, investors did technically do better in that quarter because they technically do own more of the company. But I see what you're saying. But in the long term, that's going to come out that... Uh, actually, the the actual earnings were down. Right. So if the ma- if the management team is buying back the stock at at let's say in Apple's case, which is around two hundred bucks a share, let's say they're buying back the stock at two hundred dollars a share, and it's worth a hundred dollars a share. Okay. Yeah, I mean just, that's the other part of this is they're buying like crazy still. Right. I'm not saying that's the case with Apple, but let's just say it is. Um, then what what ha- is happening is management is getting rewarded by the fund managers who are saying, hey, way to go, you increased earnings mm-hmm. per share. Brilliant, well done. They don't care that you 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 basically pissed away $100 mm-hmm. a share of owner mm-hmm. equity. They don't care because the stock price is responding to earnings yeah. per share, at least temporarily, yeah. right? It's yeah. a voting machine. So that's one really strong incentive for management teams to buy back their own stock. And many of them buy back their own stock all the time. IBM buys back its own stock like clockwork, no matter what the stock price is. Could be way over the value, could be way under the value. Now, how do they justify it other than earnings per share? Is there some means of justification that's sort of philosophically correct? And the answer is yes, there wait, is. Wait, wait, wait. What's the what question if, again? <laughs> well, what, what if I'm not? What if it's not, what if I'm not paying too much? Oh, what if, you're, what if the price is reasonable? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, how would I judge the price is reasonable? Well, I can do a lot of work and figure it mm-hmm. all out according you know, the way we teach mm-hmm. you guys here. Or I can just assume based on my education at Harvard that the price of the company and its value are the same thing. Now that is a lovely philosophy. That's a lovely, lovely theory of, of, of the markets because it gives me cover. I am now able to tell my board that the value of our company is the price. The market sets the price. The market sets the value. Therefore, whatever we pay for this stock can never be overpriced or underpriced. It's always correct. And many management teams fall back on that. Uh, theory of markets that is called modern portfolio theory or the efficient market hypothesis that says that price and value are the same thing. And that's why that thing just sticks around like a cancer. It won't go away because it's so useful to management to hide behind um, when they know damn well that their stock is massively overpriced. Mm. 
but they can cover themselves with this theory of investing. So they do that. They just go, oh, well, you know, price is value, and we're just going to buy our stock back all the time. That's how we're going to do it. Now, why would they do that exactly? Because earnings per share go up, and that's good. But there's another heinous <laughs> reason why they might do that. Not that you're that because in any way about your ensuing oh, comments. My gosh. I might be off a year or so on this, but in 1993-ish, um, during Bill Clinton's administration, Congress decided they were going to control how much money was being paid to CEOs because by the early 90s, it had become clear that boards of directors were raising CEO pay at a rate much higher than the rate of inflation and much, much higher than the rate that they were raising the pay of their mm -hmm. average worker, which they weren't mm -hmm. raising at all. They were just paying their CEOs more and more money on this kind of game. The CEOs were gaming it and continue to do so. And, and so in 1993, they decided, Congress decided to put its foot down and do something about it. And they said, if you pay your CEO, and by the way, I'm going to be off on some of the, the details on yeah. this, but the ballpark's right. If you pay your CEO more than a million dollars a year, you can't deduct it as an expense. Oh, yeah. They put a lid on CEO pay with the unintended consequence that the loopholes in the bill allowed the management team to be paid based on performance, any level they wanted, and they could be paid in stock options. Mm -hmm. And so guess what exploded? Mm -hmm. Stock options just went off the chart. And as a result of management having, quote, performance uh, requirements, which are in the proxy, um, which is handed out once a year, which I defy anyone to understand <laughs> how the performance requirements are completely a labyrinth designed to obfuscate what they actually are so that the boards can basically reward the CEO however they want, however the CEO wants. This giant game got created starting in 1993 with the best of intentions, and that is, you know, we're going to legislate control of CEO pay. Boy, did they ever they ever go the wrong way with that. And so it used to be that CEO pay was roughly 40 to one or so back in those days. Now it's 400 to one. They've taken this loophole and gone wild with it, which is to have stock options. Well, stock options are basically saying at some set price, you get every, you know, we're going to say that you get the stock at X, uh, let's say at uh, 200 and everything over 200 is your profit. All right. Is that pretty close? You're a lawyer. I don't know. Yeah. Ballpark. Yeah. How it works. Okay. So now imagine that since I don't get the benefit of my stock option, unless the stock price stays over 200 a share, I am highly incentivized to keep it over 200 a share. Now, how can I do that? Well, one of the ways I can do that is to buy back stock until the, the darn price goes over 200 a share. I just take, I take money that's not mine. And I just buy the stock, buy the stock, buy the stock, buy the stock to keep it above my option yeah. strike. Or something I've seen is yeah. like a direct incentive. Like if the stock price gets to, let's say it's at 150. If the stock price gets to 250 by five years from now, then the CEO gets a bonus of... 20 million? Yeah, exactly. Million like a dollars. lot, a lot. Yeah. Like Huge. they are very clearly incented. And knowing about that is huge. So yeah, the proxy statements are very interesting. 
And you guys, <clears throat> I'm talking about these, I'm using words like heinous and so on, but here's the truth. Every one of us would do what those CEOs well, are doing. That's yeah, dirty, I don't, I don't like those words it. because it's not, it's not like these are necessary. I mean, maybe some of them are bad people. I don't know, but like, hopefully, most of them are not bad people. And it's a way to pay that's legal and allowed, and that does directly connect the performance of the company's stock price to the CEO. And the difference between that and reality is that the company's stock price does not necessarily reflect how well the company is doing. So it's the best right. approximation that anybody's got. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. There's probably actually better approximations now that I think about it. They could tie it to like return on invested capital, for example. That would be great. Which which is what Buffett does with oh, his CEO. Well, look at me inventing is, things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He says, give me back, uh, you keep, keep the money you need to run this business and grow it as, as, mm -hmm. as well as you can. Um, and then give me back the rest of the capital. So effectively Buffett is saying, I want buybacks. I want you to send me the cash, get the cash out of the company. <clears throat> and let Oh yeah, no, but it. I was saying that they, their compensation could be tied to the return on invested capital number. It, it is. It is. It is. Right. So think about it. If the CEO gets rid of cash up to Buffett, then his denominator goes down and his return on invested capital goes up. Yeah. So the more cash he can get rid of, the more he's going to get a bonus. Oh, I see. see yeah, saying? yeah. Okay. So yes, you're assuming the bonus. <clears throat> okay. So let's talk more about compensation and what's going on with all these buybacks because there's just like a run on buybacks these days and that's why yeah. everybody's talking about them next time next time <laughs> okay <laughs> hate us bastard all right next time all right next time. thanks everybody bye until then time to go play see ya hi guys thanks for listening to invested if you enjoyed this episode and you want more information including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.